Father, as we come to the opportunity this morning to open Your Word and to share in it together, we ask, Lord, that the, the joy of our salvation would be uh, eminent in, in our thoughts and our hearts, that You would just bring that, that sense of renewal and, and drawing close to You as we come together in Your Word. We ask through Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that You would uh, cause each of us to receive what You have for us today from Your Word in such a way that not only will we hear it and in a sense taste it, but Lord, we will also walk away with the, with the desire and, and, and the energy and, and the op- looking for the opportunity to share it and to use it, Lord. To let it become real to us and to others around us. We worship You. We thank You for our salvation. You alone can save us, and we rest in that with absolute confidence. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to uh, continue talking about the gift of of teaching, uh, but from a slightly different point of view, uh, we'll we'll be using Luke chapter 6. Uh, Verses 39 through 45 is my primary text this morning. And uh, so I'll start there by by reading that. Luke chapter 6, starting with the 39th verse. He, Jesus, also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks." number of thoughts in that passage, uh, but just uh, kind of looking back, you know, last week as we looked at the gift of teaching, we went to uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, and Ephesians chapter 4, and all of those looking at the place of teaching as a spiritual gift. And I want to emphasize that, that when, it, when we're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about something that goes beyond our talents or our skills or our training. Uh, We're talking about something that that God gets involved with and anoints and causes to happen. And so it's, it's, it's given by the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, given by the Holy Spirit to be used according to God's will, according to His purpose, His plan. And as far as teaching goes, I, I wanted to emphasize again this week that within the framework of the local congregation, the local body of Christ, the teaching starts, if you will, in responsibility with the elders. 
Scripture makes it very clear that those that are called to lead as elders are to be able to teach. Now, it's interesting, even when we look at that, this idea of being able to teach, we start to get the idea of, of, of skilled teachers coming out of, out of college or, or something like that. Some of the most fantastic teachers of the Word in history simply read their manuscripts from the pulpit. But with God's anointing, it, it, it had nothing to do with does the person, did the person lose, learn how to use their hands and, and their voice inflection and all that kind of stuff. And, oh yeah, eye contact. And, and, and all the things that you learn in speech classes and teaching classes and all this type of thing. And yet God, because His anointing was on it, because God had called that person to be a teacher, it still accomplished His purpose. So, we're not talking about the professional here as much as we're talking about God called to teach. And, and so, the elders are also, though, responsible within the framework of the congregation to shepherd or protect the congregation in the area of teaching. In other words, to make sure that it coincides with Scripture. So, uh, as, as we teach, whether it's in our Sunday schools or our Bible studies or anywhere else, the covering of the elders over the congregation stretches into those areas as well to make sure that the, the Scripture is consistent with the Word of God, consistent with, with uh, bringing the news of, of God's grace and mercy and love and salvation so that, like I said, you know, protection against bad or false teaching and to provide for biblical teaching. And the question for some people, even as they look at this, is, well, why is that so important? Well, in today's Scripture, we have one key reason. There's multiple reasons, but I want to look at one in particular this morning. Starting with verse 40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. It's a very strong statement. And, and you know, so we have this, this verse, Everyone... You know, that, that is when he's fully trained by the person that's teaching him, he's going to be like the person that teaches him. In the general context of this scripture, in the overall picture here in the book of, of, of Luke, uh, Jesus is speaking to a multitude, a great crowd of people. In verses 20 and 20 through 23, uh, he even speaks uh, kind of a brief version of the Beatitudes that you would find in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, in verses 27 through 30, he talks about loving your, your, neighbor, or your enemies. Not just your neighbors, but loving your enemies and ministering to the needy. In verses 37 through 38, instead of judging, he says, we should be offering grace, kindness, forgiving, and forgiveness. And he says what's interesting is, is that as you offer forgiveness it comes back to you. As you offer grace, it comes back to you. As you offer kindness, it comes back to you. I hate to be so trite in using the, 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 the phrase that is common to this, but what goes around comes around. Has no, I'm not getting into Eastern religion and karma. I'm just saying what goes around comes around. And so if, if you are a person who is offering kindness and, and, and grace and mercy and giving and forgiveness, it comes back to you. And some people will say, well, I've, I've got experiences that would con contradict that. 
don't excuse the reality that from God is the first source it comes back from. So, if you offer it this way and nothing is ever acknowledged, nothing is ever given back to you, if you will, you're still receiving it this way as far as blessing. And I'll tell you what, to have that positive attitude and that, that looking at the, the people around you and looking for the best instead of the worst and, and not being so quick to judge, it, it has a, a, a way of, of bringing a sense of peace even to you. Uh, you're, you're not so frantic in this world. You're not so pushy. You're not so caught up with some of the things that are negative in the world. And so, you know, this is, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, this is important. Now, this was in contradiction to the, the, the norm. The norm was to look at a situation and try to assess, especially if it was negative, why, why is God doing this? Who is he punishing? Recall the uh, chapter 9 of, of, of the Gospel of John. The blind man, born from birth, birth born blind, blind from birth, there we go. And... Uh, he, he would, uh, the, the disciples said, well, who sinned that this man is born blind? Was it his parents? Or did he even sin in the womb? <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, he's blind. There must be something wrong. Think of Job as his friends, quote, uh, as his friends came to, to minister to him in his distress as all of his wealth and his family had been taken away from him. They said, well, just acknowledge your sin and get on with it, you know. And, and it, that wasn't the issue, you know. So, we have the, the, the culture of, 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 of uh, and, and we tend to be the same way, you know. Uh, we, we tend to reflect as we look at people, we say, well, all your bad decisions have got you where you are today. And, and is, by the way, I have to say there's a truth in that. Your decisions are where you are today. But the other side of it is, there isn't a person in this room that hasn't made a bad decision that's impacted your life in a negative way, but have, not, but have chosen, if you will, hopefully, to have come under the grace of God and forgiveness. So instead of starting with the judgment, we start with the grace, the mercy, the kid. There may be a point where you have to come alongside someone and say, but this is sin in your life. Scripture talks about acknowledging that with a brother or a sister. And helping them deal with it and come to before the Lord with it. But it's done with a compassion and not judgment. The Pharisees, they just simply looked at every... Well, quite candidly, if you weren't a part of the Pharisees or the scribes of the priesthood in that category of teachers, then you couldn't help but be a lower caste sinner. It says Jesus hung around with the sinners. What the Pharisees were saying is he doesn't hang around with us. The good guys. And yet, Jesus has quite a lot to say to them about all of this. So, we have this, this, this context of, of looking at things that takes us up to uh, the verses that are the focus this morning. Uh, verses, uh, well, specifically verse uh, 39 and 40. And this idea of becoming like your teacher. And... And again, it's, it's couched, this, this verse is couched in, in a, a, a small group of parables. The first one is, is simply, can a blind man 
you know, uh, lead a blind man into success? And the answer would be, you know, it's implied, you know, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? Now, if you've got to figure extremely rural environment, pits, ditches, all sorts of things, even open, uh, unused wells, uh, wells that have dried up, that have never been filled in, <laughs> all those kinds of things. Uh, you, and a blind man is trying to, to lead, literally, another blind person. Now, we can get technical and we can turn around and say, well, yeah, with the right kind of cane and the right sonar that we have today to go to the, you know, all this... That's not the purpose. Keep the general picture in mind. I'm a blind person and I'm looking for help and, and, and somebody says, oh, there's a blind man over there. Go ask him. And I go ask him and say, oh, he, and he says, oh, sure, I'll show you the way. And, and, and in a place that he hasn't arrived at yet before in his life. And so that's where we get that idea of, you know, the blind leading the blind as being a foolish thing. Jesus spoke and wants us, you know, earlier and in, in other places about this idea of blindness as being the idea of, of not knowing the way to God, actually. And so that's the implication even here. Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 23, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, he calls them blind guides. He says, you're trying to lead people into to, to, to God and you haven't even got there yourself. And, and you're saying, come along with me. Uh, and and you're instead, you're leading them the wrong way. Blind guide is what he called them. So this idea of the blind is, when we apply it to this picture of teachers, as he comes up to the next saying, he says, so if you have a, uh, you're seeking godly direction, in your life, and you're, and, and you're looking for somebody to lead you, here are these anxious and willing teachers, guides, the Pharisees, willing to lead you. But, they haven't, they're not even going in the right direction themselves. But they're more than willing to take you their way. With the assumption that they are going the right direction. So I, I put it this way in my notes. It says, thus, those who are looking for answers, the blind, end up being led by those who claim to have the answers but do not, the blind guides. The ultimate end is both the one seeking the answers and the one offering the answers end up in the pit together. They miss the goal they miss the, the, the place that they want to arrive, which would ultimately be in, this, in the metaphor, heaven. And again, this is generally true because the student becomes like the teacher. Now, today we're less likely to say that, because, and I'll get into that in a second, but teaching in the New Testament times was considerably different than the way we look at it today, and especially in the in, in the in the the Jewish culture. The general, in fact, in the Jewish culture, general training was applied. Ladies, even though it's Mother's Day, please, you know, remember this was the Jewish culture doing this. <laughs> it wasn't what the Word of God necessarily would have done. It's 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 they, they had a cultural thing where the boys 
went to the synagogue to learn the, the, the language, to read it, and to write it. Because they were the ones that would be teaching and, and everything else. The women stayed at home. The girls stayed at home and learned from their moms, this type of thing. The key that I want you to understand, basically, is the system. You went to the, the boys went to the synagogue. They learned. And then they got to that point where they were you know, uh, an early age, still normally a, a pre, uh, you know, that, that adolescent age to preteen age, where they would now be involved in whatever it was the dad was doing. And they would receive training. If there wasn't room for that, then the parents normally found another craftsman or person who had a business that would take you on as an apprentice. But that would, your education was to learn to read, to write, and to, to be able to understand the Scriptures. And then that was it. Most everybody went in then to their trade. A few went on to higher education, if you will. And they would sit under a teacher and they would actually become, just as, as it was with, with, with the disciples, they would, they would literally travel with this teacher, sit under his teaching, and be with him all around the clock. Paul did this. In Acts chapter 22, uh, verse uh, 4, we have uh, Paul explaining his, his upbringing, his, his education. And he says, uh, uh, well, actually, verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He says, I was brought up... And he sat at the feet of this particular teacher. And what would happen is they would go looking for a teacher and, and request you know, to sit underneath their teaching and, and to be with them. And like I said, it's peril Jesus had his disciples. They did the same thing. The interesting thing, however, was they didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. Already a different way of looking at things. They didn't do the, the, the seeking and looking in the sense of saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna. to... Jesus came up to them and said, come, follow me. He really, he was the one that initiated the move. But you would commit yourself to this teacher. Become his disciple. Uh... And this, this was a pattern really clear up into the 1800s. In fact, Charles Spurgeon wrote, he says, in music, and he just used a few things here, he says, in music, painting, poetry, literature, men seldom excel their masters, or if they do, they leave him. In other words, they, they study under a, a master teacher. The habit is to perpetuate the master's mannerisms and weaknesses. In other words, they become like their teacher. And I will share with you that I had an experience like this in my life. And it's not the norm even at the time that I was experiencing it. Uh, it was something that was already de you know, leaving the arena as far as a way to teach and a way to learn, to tr learn a trade. But it, when I was uh, in high school, a sophomore in high school, I started working for a master craftsman. And I worked for him three years, which was what 
the union, even though we weren't a union shop, would have considered an apprenticeship. And then I worked for him, continuing to be theoretically a student for five more years. Now, at that point, he pushes me out of the shop because it's a family-owned business and there's no future for me in there. I have to go on with my own life in a, in a, in a separate way. But still, eight years of, of learning from a person one-on-one, pretty much, how to do a particular trade. Now, the interesting thing is, is that I learned to do it his way. And you can go to a myriad of industrial arts books and say, oh, Bob does it wrong. I maybe picked up some bad habits from my teacher. But when I try to do it any way different, I come up with a negative result. I'm locked into a procedure of doing things and a way of doing things that works and brings about the result that, that I desire. And... And so, and I learned this from my teacher. As a result, it's even hard for me to pass it on other than one-on-one. I can't give, it's hard to do in a classroom even. So, there's this sense of becoming like your teacher. And there's certain things that were my boss's way of looking at things that are still the way I think today. He had a tremendous impact on my life. One of the key things that I, I, I think about and, and, and use is I can only do today, you know, what I can, you know, and accomplish with the materials and things that I have. And he would put it this way. You do the best you can today with what you have to work with. He says your health may be better tomorrow or may have been better the other day and you could do better. Or the materials you have to work with may have been better yesterday or better tomorrow and you'll be able to produce a slightly better product. But today, this is what you have. This is the health you have. And you do the best you can with what you have to work with. I still consider that good advice and a good way to think. And I'll tell you, it helps you sleep at night too. <laughs> you know? and, and so, you know, this idea, uh, it's not the norm the way we do it today. Instead, today... The student takes, really, we, we, I wrote down the word smorgasbord and I thought, I wonder how many people even know what that is. Buffet. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have kind of this buffet or smorgasbord effect. I take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I put it together and, and I create almost, in a sense, my own way of looking at things. I go to, you know, I take, I take these electives, those electives, these things, these things, and, and a certain core of things required for mastering a subject, but even those I don't take from any one person, but I take from a multitude of people. As a result, my education is classified, in a sense, as broader. You know, I have more, you know, horizon to work with, in a sense. It's not always better. Sometimes if you could have sat under, let's say you're becoming a a teacher in a classroom, if you could have sat under a a fifth grade teacher for four years and learned her skills, I'm thinking of Virginia Nesmith, you'd have walked away a great teacher. So, you know, it's, 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 it's... Today we're, we're more in the area of I'll create my own blend of truth that suits me. 
Uh, and I put in quotes, soothing my itchy ears. And if you want to look that up, 2 Timothy 4.3 will give you an explanation of that. Now let me give it to you. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will uh, uh, accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In other words, things that are outside of the Word of God that don't confirm or can't be confirmed from the Word of God, they'll turn around and say, oh, these are now my truths. Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of warnings about false teaching when it comes to spiritual things. Remember from last week, I, I used uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3 in reference to test the spirits of the things that are around you, you know, the, the things that are being taught. Not that you can't sit in that classroom, but understand, does it confirm Jesus Christ or deny Jesus Christ? That's what John was basically getting at. And when John said that, he wasn't referring to any specific part of Jesus Christ as a whole, but basically the whole picture of Christ and who He is, His deity, and, and does it confirm Him or deny Him? I use this picture frequently. I go to a public school education school board uh, meeting, and I ask them from the floor, do you guys confess that Jesus Christ is the, the Son of God come in the flesh? Their answer is going to be very straightforward and depending on the person could be very polite or, or, or obviously indignant. But they're going to basically say, no, we, we embrace everybody the same. All religions are welcome in our school or, if you will, unwelcome, you know, theoretically. And I'm not even sure that happens equitably. But, but the idea is, is that we're not, we're not going to favor any one religion. We're not going, and, and so when we start, talk about history, when we talk about science, we leave God out of the equation. Quite candidly, when, when you move into academics and looking at it from a Christian point of view, God is in every equation. Even math and science and history and language. But they say, no, we're going to leave God out of that equation. Okay, that tells me something if I'm going to send my kids to a public school. Does it mean I can't send my kids to a public school? That's not what I said. But I better be on top of what is going on in the classroom because that teacher will be teaching things that are contrary to what the Word of God says. And I need to be aware of that. And I need to counter that with God's teaching both in the home and through the church in other ways. And that's focusing on the kids. You think about how important this scripture is when it refers to children. If anybody is, is, well, those of us who have taken children up through the middle school years especially, which is up through eighth grade, up into that sophomore, you know, freshman, sophomore years, uh, that, that time where they go to school, they learn something, they come home and tell you, and you say, oh, no, that's not the truth. And they say, ah, but the teacher said it was. And the teacher is the, the authority because they're in the classroom. And for, for a, a season of life, it challenges the home. And so we're aware that there is something different being taught in a public school system than what would be taught in a Christian school or in homeschooling from a Christian perspective. 
So this warning, test the spirits. Be sure that you know what is being taught. Uh, it's interesting, uh, John MacArthur labels uh, false teachers as spiritual terrorists. And I thought that was an interesting phrase the first time I heard it. Spiritual terrorists. Because a terrorist is basically a person who lays in wait in what is considered normally a safe place and then unloads their, 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 their threat, if you will, whatever it is. And spiritual terrorists lay... What, what could be safer than a classroom? What could be safer than, you know, these other... You know, and, and so we need to be aware that there is a, a competition for our children's minds. I mentioned last week, again, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, talks about spiritual warfare and the battle for the mind. You know, and, and the strongholds of the mind, the things that the mind hangs on to. That's a very real thing. And we need to, again... Not, we're never going to run away from it. We're never going to hide from it. We live in a world full of... We need to be aware of it. And we need to be... Just as, as elders are called to protect the congregation, parents are called to, to protect their children. And we, we're accountable to that. We're responsible before the throne of God for that. As to what they learn in contrast to, you know, that, that may not be true in, in, in reference to the Word of God. Paul put a warning to elders in, in uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. Uh, he talked about the wolves creeping in amongst them. And he was referring to false teachers at that point in time. And Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, called false teachers wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody's intentionally out here trying to thinking from their terms that they're, they're teaching something untrue. But they're coming off like, you know, every, everything, for instance, that attitude of everything is okay, anything is, is right, depending on the situation. Sometimes you have to lie. Sometimes you may have to do this, you may have to do that, contrary to any set standard of morals or ethics. And, and so we call it situation ethics. And yet, from a Christian point of view, we say, no, we have an absolute core value system here of, of an ethical way to look at things and to live our lives. And this person isn't out here necessarily thinking themselves, oh, I'm going to put on my sheep's clothing today and come out. They, they, but they still are wolves there, meaning that there's something there that would devour the mind of, 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 of someone willing with a, something that's not true. And they're coming off as, this is, this is Okay. This is all right. They're not coming on as the boogeyman. They're coming on as, as, as the, this is the truth. This is the way things are. And so, really, when you think about it, if Paul says this exists outside and inside the church, that means we get attacked from all, from all angles. What does that mean for us as, as people and seeking and following after God? It means as students, if you will, seeking a teacher, we need to be choosing our teachers carefully. First and foremost, we choose Jesus Christ. And once we choose Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters in and becomes a teacher. 
And it is amazing, without a lot of instruction as a Christian, as you rest in Christ and you read the Word of God, there are certain things that become convi- you become convicted about that aren't godly, that need to be set aside in your life. And so we, we, that reality, and some people turn around and say, well, that's sufficient. I've got Christ as my Savior, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. I don't need any other teachers. That's not what Scripture says. Or God wouldn't appoint spiritual gifts of teaching to the church. So in addition to that, there are teachers that God calls to be involved in your life. You choose where that's going to happen. You choose the church that you're going to be in. You choose the, the Bible studies you're going to be in. You choose the places that you're going to go and listen. And so you need to have something going on that, that helps you evaluate and look at who your teachers are. Now, Jesus, uh, you know, he's, his concern is, is that, and, and Paul, as he teaches, the concern is that there are many teachers that are out there but there are those who are, and, 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 and Paul puts it, blinded by the God of this world. They use their own worldly wisdom. They try to explain God in their own experiences. As to, you know, instead of looking at God as something beyond them that has revealed himself through his word, they just turn around and say, well, this is what I think. As a result, they don't acknowledge the things that God would acknowledge, for instance, as sin. And it's an interesting thing that happens. I go around looking and I'll say, oh, you, you, you have the wrong opinion about how to look at this issue. Uh, you need to be very broad-minded about some particular issue, gender issues or other things. And the Word may say something very specific about it. Okay, But this teacher saying that he knows God and, 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 and knows the Word. And it's God, you know, he says, no, everything is, is acceptable before the throne of God, just as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. What, what Jesus is saying here is that he doesn't understand what sin even is. As a result, he's got this huge beam in his eye, but he can look at you and see a speck, he says, that needs to be removed. And Jesus says very bluntly, you hypocrite. First, deal with the log that's in your eye. Deal with what sin is in your life. And, and this person, might be, the Pharisee would have been, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. There's no sin in my life. That's where Jesus puts out, go to Matthew 23, the seven woes, <laughs> on, on reference to the Pharisees. You blind people, you blind guides. You're not even acknowledging what things are sin in the eyes of God. And as a result, in that you're turning around and pointing to everybody else's sin. Let me take the speck out of your eye. Now you think of the, and I've pointed this out more than one time here, but the absurdity of the picture. Make a fantastic, you know, you know satirical almost cartoon. Because the idea of, of, the, of, of the, the beam or the log that's in somebody's eye is a beam from a roof. Okay, that's a pretty substantial piece of wood. Okay, and so I, I, I frequently use the, the kind of the picture like this, you know. Here, let me take the, the, the speck out of your eye. You know, 
and this is small in comparison. It's, it's really an absurd picture. Jesus wanted it to be ridiculous. He wanted it to be absurd because what he wanted to see was the, the amazing irony of, of, of people, anybody turning around and saying, here, let me take the specks out of your eye. I'm qualified. Before they deal with their own sin before the throne of God. And the reality is, what you'll find is that no one is qualified to take the speck out of their brother's eye. When I finally deal with the log in my eye, I realize it's by grace that God has removed the sin by my confession that it's, it's taken care of. And it's through that that I become at peace with God. And all I can do with my brother is to help him see that and let God remove the speck. Does that make sense to you? I hope you're catching the drift of this because this is really important. And so, it's, it's, you know, Jesus says in the midst of this thing, you know, these teachers are running around with these huge logs in their eye trying to remove specks. We don't, I don't want you to become like them. I don't want you to become like them. I want your hearts to be filled of good treasure. And the things of, uh, and what he's referring to would be the things of God. You'll be a tree that produces good fruit. I put here, okay, I hate the term fruit inspector. How do we know who to follow? And part of it in our culture today, even from the churches, he must be okay. Look at the following he has. I've even had people say he must be okay, and that's just no joke. He must be okay. He's got a TV ministry. He must be okay. Look at how many books he's written. And we've used all sorts of criteria. But Jesus said that's that, you know, you know, what is really the good fruit? Uh, and, and so it really begins with the spirit of this person's teaching, the spirit of his books. Does he confess the Christ of the scriptures? Does he teach the grace of the scriptures? Jesus Christ, son of God. Does he teach God-breathed Word of God? You might ask, really, and I think it's a reasonable thing if you're going to sit under somebody's teaching, what's your statement of faith? What are the things you believe? I will tell you, the majority of the time that people come to the congregation, most of them don't ask that question. They'll figure it out from the teaching after a while and they'll decide whether they want to stay or not. But I think it's a fair question to ask from the very beginning. You've, you know, what's the statement of faith? What is it that you believe? And they can turn around and say, well, those are some rather strange things. Or they can turn around and say, oh, I see that in Scripture. I see that in Scripture. He's showing you where these things come from. But in addition to it's the, the essence of, of, of the core of what you believe, what's on the teacher's belief window, if you will, what we're also looking at is as you observe the person's life, and this takes a little bit of time, by the way, you also have the opportunity, and it's not inappropriate, to observe the lives of those who follow that teacher. 
Okay. Do I see what the Scripture says a Christian should look like? They love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their son, with all their might, love their neighbor as their self. Do I see the fruit of the Spirit love being manifested in gentleness, kindness, long-suffering, and patience? Do I see the picture of, of, of love as Paul describes it, of places where they don't keep a list of wrongs? That when they forgive, it's a, it's, it's, it's a book put on the shelf and not taken off again? Kindness and gentleness, again, long-suffering? Do I see Christ alone as what is put forward as the source of salvation? Christ and no other. Jesus said it Himself. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. No one can come to the Father but through me, he says. Period. Acts chapter 4. There is no other name in heaven, under, under heaven that a man can be saved. It's in the name Jesus. The Christ, the Son of God. And then we look, I think also, is it by grace and grace alone? Look at, you know, we, we, we read it, but it's important. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses of sin in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you were following teachers that were not of Christ, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up from them and seated us with Him at the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace, he says it again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You need to look at what's being taught as you sit under teachers. And assess what the value system supporting that teaching is. Does it mean you don't go to, to a, a, a public school? No, that's not what I'm saying. But assess. In fact, I have a rather strong opinion. And some people will argue this with me. But I have a rather strong opinion about when we send our kids into a public school environment. And I've told my own kids this very same thing. You have the responsibility. If you choose to have a teacher... Especially when it's up to you. It's your choice. And you choose to sit underneath a particular teacher. Once you go into that classroom, in a sense you've agreed that this person is the master and I'm the student. Your responsibility as a student is to glean from that teacher everything you can. And to, and I know this sounds trite for a moment, parrot 
back everything that he says is important when it comes time for a test or an essay. Do you have to agree with it? No. That's where you can come into contrast with this and say, but this isn't of God. In fact, in some cases, I would encourage you to turn around if you want to take a risk. If you have learned what that teacher has to offer and you pair it back, you also, as far as I'm concerned, have the, the right and the opportunity to then express your own opinion. Now, there's a, there's a high risk in that. I'll tell you a number of teachers I've come into conflict with uh, because they'll say, well, that's not what I taught in class. I will come back, and this is what happened with, with my daughter at one point. I said, but did she answer the question correctly? Yes, but then she said, and I said, no, did she answer your questions correctly? Yes. How accurately? A hundred percent. I said, then why did she get a C? Because she ought, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, she, she has the right to offer her opinion if she's learned yours. We got the thing corrected, and I know that there were teachers probably even up through my son's time at the high school say, here he comes. You know? But you know, the idea is is to to if you put yourself in the school where that's the, the thing, you're, this is how it works. Part of what has to be the core of the teaching system that you would put yourself under from a spiritual point of view has to do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Period. And it's no small issue in the church today. There are lots of, I'll put it in the kind words that I can use for the moment, opinions about how to look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ even within the framework of churches that, that wear the name Christian and, and use the Bible for sources as teaching material, they do not preach. They, they look at the death as something that maybe did happen or maybe didn't happen. It really doesn't matter. It's his teachings that survived, and that's what we look at. He was a good teacher, and that's what they teach. And they miss the essence of what it was that Christ came to do and that was to remove logs out of our eyes. And He did it through the death, burial, and resurrection. He did it by dying on the cross for us. Look what it says in, 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 again in, 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 Act, or in Ephesians chapter uh, 2. Um, further down in the chapter, verse 19, He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In, whom, in Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by God, by the, by the Spirit. Jesus Christ being the very foundation, the very cornerstone. Further back it says, Now in Christ Jesus, who once you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dwelling wall of hostility. In other words, He's set us at peace with God through His righteousness. 
in, in the psalm that was read today, it says, righteousness kisses peace. I love that picture. The righteousness of Christ brings us to peace. He removed the logs that were separating us from God. And as a result, we can come alongside each other in our struggles and our battles with specs together and help each other be successful in, in walking towards the throne of God. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. Communion is a perfect example of that. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is celebrated every time and His coming again every time we share in communion. Ask the ushers to come, pass out the emblems, hold them until we've all been served, and we'll share together.
I will read from Ephesians. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by which is called the circumcision. In other words, you saying you guys are the other side of things which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers to, be, to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus made a picture that was so clear we couldn't uh, ever forget it. He wanted it to be a perpetual memory and something done as often as we would gather together until He comes again. And that has to deal with the, the bread and the cup. Two very simple pictures. One, the bread, His body. He said, broken for us. And he asked us often as we would share this bread that we'd do it in remembrance of him. The cup. The end of the supper, Passover meal, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood poured out. Life is in the blood. Poured out. His life poured out. And he did it in love. And he asked us as often as we do this to do it in remembrance of him. Father, again, we thank You that we can come to Your Word, come to the table together, and know that coming to Your Word and to the table is, is we do it through grace. And because of that, we, we, we know that, you, that we have no condemnation because You've taken that for us. It's an awesome thing to know. The words, again, Paul writes in, in, in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we rest in Your grace, as we rest in Your mercy, as we rest in Your work, we come face to face to God with confidence. We are saved. Thank You. And as we worship You and thank You and, and, and go on through this day, we'd ask that we would take this grace with a sense of gratitude and mercy and kindness towards others. And that we would look for the opportunity to not only having been taught this morning by your word, but then to teach others. Probably more often than not, by just simply how we treat them. And Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the reality that we can rest for the rest of our lives with the confidence that the God of all creation is our Savior. Thank you. We worship you in Jesus' name.